you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Verse 16, great, indeed we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and uh, most merciful Father, as we gather together on this evening uh, to commemorate the birth of our uh, risen and ascended Savior, we ask that your Spirit would descend to illuminate our hearts that we might understand and sing with one voice uh, the great and glorious gospel, that great mystery of piety that is found uh, in the appearing of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Of course, this is, I think, the time of the year where uh, everybody enjoys uh, or hates listening to certain songs on the radio, uh, depending upon not only your disposition, but also uh, the types of songs that you can hear. I don't think there's any uh, other time of the year that has uh, such a mixture of such wonderful and such terrible music. Uh, you think of such uh, wonders of uh, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen or Heart the Herald Angels Sing by many times uh, uh, particular uh, musicians and singers that you didn't know they even heard uh, of the name of Jesus. Uh, and yet during this time there are these songs and we think this is really well done. And at the other hand, uh, on the other hand, uh, we're subjected to hearing such songs as Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney, uh, Happy Christmas, The War is Over by John Lennon, and any other sundry things that just make you uh, want to uh, vomit. But perhaps uh, one of my least favorite songs of all times, again, I think Paul McCartney still takes the cake on all of these, uh, but is uh, the little jingle, uh, you better watch out, uh, you better not cry, you better not pout, why? Santa Claus is coming to town. I think it's a really stupid song, but I think for uh, the Western world, no offense uh, to those who think it's a great song, perhaps some offense, um, but for, I'm not saying it as a preacher, though. I'm just saying it as my own personal opinion, which happens to be right. Uh, but for the Western world, uh, Christmas carries with it its own code of conduct, doesn't it? Uh, be it Father Christmas in England, the Belschnickel in Germany, Sinterklaas in the Netherlands, or Santa Claus here in the U.S. all tell the same message. Be a good little boy, and maybe, just maybe at the end of the year, you'll get something good and not a lump of coal. Think of how the jolly fat man drives so much of our economy. Uh, three months out of the year is devoted uh, to advertisements in marketing ads and jingles and movies. Think of uh, uh, just even the price that people pay in their electric bills this month of the year as they attempt not only to light up the inside of their house, but the whole world on the outside of their lawn. Three months of our years uh, of our lives, each year centers around a man who never existed. And so I hope uh, I have not ruined anybody's party uh, by driving home the point that Santa Claus is not real. Uh, if I have, Merry Christmas. Um, can't wait to surprise you with another treat next year. But what a contrast this is that we have between uh, what we hear on the radio and the great testimony of Scripture. As the church is gathered not to celebrate a myth, but to celebrate history. 
It's a fascinating uh, passage, I think, that we have before us this evening where Paul encounters a a similar situation. There are false teachers who have invested themselves in spinning yarns and myths rather than celebrating the historical reality that the Son of God has come, not for good little boys and girls, but that Christ has come for sinners. This is, in fact, the church's confession. Paul calls it here the mystery of godliness. It might as well be uh, translated, you see, in other uh, versions as the mystery of piety, the mystery of true religion, the thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. You know, just as we uh, gather tonight to sing popular hymns and carols, the early church sang hymns too, and it seems as though this particular verse, verse 16, uh, might be a hymn, or at least the fragment of a hymn, that praises Christ in poetic form for all that he has done and tells of the good gifts that he has brought by his appearing. What I'd like us to consider is to to unpack this little poem, these three couplets that exhibit this particular mystery, the mystery of true religion. You'll see here uh, these three couplets, the contrast between the flesh and the spirit, The contrast between the angels and the nations. And finally, the contrast between this world and the next. So flesh and spirit, angels and nations, and then uh, what we might call this world and the next. And I'll explain that uh, when we get there. You see this first contrast here, that Christ was manifested in the flesh and yet vindicated by uh, the spirit. I think it's one of the most compact statements we have regarding the person and work of Christ. He who was gone from eternity has appeared. Of course, to say that God the Son appeared assumes that he existed prior to his appearing. It's not simply that here the Son of God came into existence. Rather, he has been manifested. What is it that the church confesses week in and week out, either in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, that we confess he who was begotten from all eternity but not made? And here we find our scriptural proof text, as it were, in this particular passage where it says that Christ appeared. It assumes his eternality. It assumes his eternal pre-existence, that he existed before we had even seen him. That he who has been without beginning has entered into time and space by taking to himself flesh and blood that he might bear the curse of sin at Calvary. And yet, even as this first half of this first couplet speaks of his pre-existence and his incarnation, it speaks of his appearance, that we have seen him, that we have seen, or at least the apostles have seen his flesh and blood, as we read in 1 John chapter 1. The second half of this first couplet also attests to his resurrection from the dead, his vindication. That Greek word there is the exact same word for vindication and justification. I mean, imagine with me a particular scenario where an innocent man has been falsely accused and new evidence has come to light noting that he is in fact innocent. So what happens? He has been released or what we would see in the news would be the fact that is said that his innocence has been vindicated. It's exactly what we're seeing here when it says that he was vindicated in the spirit Perhaps we might say he was vindicated by the Spirit. It makes reference to his resurrection from the dead. 
It's the very thing that Peter proclaims in the book of Acts, that hell could, or the, uh, that, that Sheol, the grave, could not contain him uh, because he was innocent, not guilty of sin, though he himself was condemned as a sinner. His resurrection is itself the proof and evidence of his sinlessness. And yet Christ, sinless though he was, was condemned and crucified as a sinner. Right, Just as the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 3 that death is, in fact, sin's paycheck. It's the very thing we deserve at the end of our lives. It is the reward we get for our merits, or perhaps we might say our demerits, for the ways in which we have violated the law of God. In other words, all of us are naughty, none of us are nice. Death is what we have deserved, and yet the gospel, the great mystery of piety, the mystery of godliness, the mystery of true religion is that he who was sinless came to bear our sins, that he who never sinned and did not deserve to die was condemned and declared to be the greatest sinner that ever was, so to speak, that we might bear the righteousness of God. He who had done no wrong bore the sins of all who had, that we might be the recipients of the mercy of God. And so the greatest sinless one, the only sinless man who has ever lived, died, was put to death, and yet was vindicated by the Spirit, raised from the dead, so that the resurrection is his vindication. The grave could not hold our Savior, had no right to keep him, And so Christ's resurrection is the declaration of his godliness. It attests to his own true religion and piety. That he would rather face the cross than sin against his own heavenly Father. It's the very thing that we're reminded every year, both at Christmas and at Easter, perhaps, I hope, every Sunday. A dead Messiah is no good news. But a crucified Messiah... Dead and raised is the best news because it proves that he has dealt with our sins once and for all. He has put the kibosh on all of Satan's accusations. Who can bring a charge against God's elected is God who justifies. 1 John 3 tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So here in this first couplet that he has appeared. He was manifested. He was vindicated. Speaks to the uh, incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second contrast here we see in this verse uh, gives another contrast that is worth thinking about the mystery of true godliness. Namely this, that the greatest victory won for the human race was not done in a back alley, but in the battlefield of history. It says here that he was seen by the angels and then proclaimed among the nations. This is a spectacle for the whole world to see, the whole realm, both visible and invisible. See, Christianity is not an abstract philosophy, nor is it a half-cocked last-minute invention, just as the New Testament attests that all that Christ has done has been the fulfillment of over a millennia of prophecy and hope and longing, and fulfillment. That all the promises of God find their resounding yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And all other world religions can only try to make sense of man's greatness and his misery, but are not able to reconcile the two. They inevitably fail. Either the emphasis is only on man's greatness or only on his misery. Yet Christianity makes sense of both. Because all other religions fail to account for what has truly happened in history. Those great events of the creation, the terror of the fall, and the glory of redemption, and the great hope of the consummation to be found on the last day. See, the very flow of history anticipates our Savior's arrival, both his first advent and his last. The last advent for which we still all wait with bated breath. The Old Testament foretells the appearing of the Son of God and the salvation that he brings. Listen to what uh, Peter writes in his first letter. Concerning this salvation that is to be found in Christ, it was spoken of beforehand by the Spirit of Christ, who spoke through the prophets concerning the person and work of Christ. Speaking of his suffering and his glory, his manifestation and his vindication, and it is this very thing that even the angels long to see. Hebrews 2 tells us Christ did not take to himself a fallen angelic nature. As the demons in rebellion have no hope of salvation. However, Christ has come to help Adam's fallen race by taking to himself a human nature. And so Scripture tells of the longing even the angels have in witnessing this great salvation lavished upon the host of mankind. We need to consider how the angels bookend Christ's ministry. They appear to the shepherds at Christ's birth, who then tell them to go tell it on the mountain. And yet these same angels appear to the disciples at Christ's ascension who then tell them to announce to the nations that the king of the world has taken his seat on the heavenly throne as he has ushered in a new world order. The announcement of angels, both at the beginning and end of Christ's ministry here on earth, that Christ crucified and raised has done so not for good little boys and girls, but has done so for sinners like you and me. That he has died and he has been raised, not because we were good, but precisely the opposite, because we are not good. It's a historical reality attested not just by the human race, not just by the shepherds, but also witnessed by the angelic hosts of heaven and proclaimed now by the church throughout the world. Which leads us to the final contrast, that he was believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. What I think this final couplet does is contrast not particularly two realms of space, though that is part of the issue. Rather, it is bringing into focus two different world orders. This age and the age to come. In a world fraught with darkness and death, Christ has come bringing light and life. Even as Christ was taken up into glory, his first act as king was to lavish his spirit on his church, to lavish his spirit on the nations, not just one particular nation, but to lavish his spirit on his people 
that we might become partakers of the world to come. Just as the first Adam brought sin and death, Paul writes in Romans 5, so the last Adam has come to undo it. To use the language of one of my favorite contemporary, semi-contemporary authors, that he has come to make everything sad come untrue by bringing righteousness and life. In other words, Christianity is not an abstract philosophy, though it does have philosophical implications. Rather, it is a confession of history that salvation has indeed come. And so you see here is given before us in three short little couplets. Think how, how compact this statement is, the great mystery of piety. That, w- that which was hidden has now been revealed. God's plan from eternity past to stoop and to save sinners through the birth of the Son who always was, has done so, so that we, being strangers, might be made sons. That we might not any longer be seen as exiles or aliens from the throne of grace, but received wholeheartedly into the family of God. If you notice the six verbs we find here in these three couplets, all are given in the passive voice. If you remember your your English uh, grammar lessons, perhaps you don't want to, perhaps you're trying to block it out. You're thinking, I'm on Christmas vacation, don't tell me about this. But this is important. Notice this. He was manifested. He was vindicated. He was seen. He was proclaimed. He was believed in. He was taken up. What does this tell us? This tells us that the mystery of religion, the mystery of godliness, does not center on our own piety. Rather, it centers on Christ. The Christ is the gospel. The Christ is the good news, and he himself is the glad tidings that are given, not just one uh, evening a year, but every Lord's Day as we gather together to be reminded of those glad tidings of grace and peace, that amnesty has come through the proclamation of the gospel, that it is the means whereby Christ has come to save sinners and to subject and subjugate his enemies to himself. It is why we sing not about Santa, but about our Savior. Because our religion is not a myth. It's not a marketing ploy. Rather, it is the cornerstone of history that Christ has appeared and has come to usher us into a new world. And he has done so in such a way as to usher sinners into a new world where peace and righteousness will reign forevermore. And so he calls us to train ourselves, Paul does in this passage, unto godliness. The great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, and that we must learn how to behave in the household of God in light of this confession of godliness, to pray for peace on earth, and to order our homes aright, to serve with dignity, and to serve with gentleness as we presently rejoice and await our Savior's second advent. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great hope of the gospel that is found in your word. 
We ask that this often overlooked passage might capture our hearts and set our imaginations on fire as we long for that day when our faith will be made sight and we will see our Savior who has come on the day when he comes again. Bless us, we pray, that we might bless you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.